Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. This is the Norman Invasion, Part 18, Prince John in Ireland. It's been two months since there's been a show on the invasion, but the series is back with a vengeance today as the most notorious man in medieval history, the real-life Prince John of Robin Hood fame, enters our story. The story of Prince John, bad, possibly mad and even dangerous, makes for a fascinating podcast. Before we talk into this, I want to make an announcement, something that you won't want to miss. As I mentioned in the last podcast, on June 6th, you have the chance to experience a unique tour of medieval Ireland, taking in the locations where many of the events featured in this series took place. You can relive the stories of our past in the buildings where some of the most famous people in our history lived and died. This is, of course, the Medieval Road Trip, a once-off bus tour which will take you to Glendalough, beginning our story around the year 500, progressing through Viking raids and the Norman invasion. From Glendalough, we will journey overland to Kilkenny, the finest Norman city in Ireland. Its buildings, from the town's Black Abbey to its outstanding castle, will give you a great sense of Norman life in Ireland. Then we will conclude in somewhere few of you will ever have been, Kilcooley Abbey, a truly remarkable site in North Tipperary, a forgotten gem of Irish history, but preserved to an immaculate level. To book your seat on this unique tour, you need to act now. Email and get your space at booking at irishhistorytours.ie Your space at booking at irishhistorytours.ie There's only 15 places left, so get in touch now if you want your place. That email address is booking at irishhistorytours.ie Now, to Prince John. In the early months of 1185, a large army and baggage train trundled through South Wales, destined for Ireland. The thousands of soldiers, courtiers, officials and hangers-on were accompanying 
one man known to his contemporaries as John Lachland to the port of St. David's on the west coast of Wales. John Lachland, only 18 years of age, was the latest Norman leader destined for Ireland. Since the Norman conquest had begun in 1169, thousands had taken this route through Wales to the ports facing the Irish coasts, but few had the potential to transform Ireland like this young man. John Lackland was the youngest son of Henry II and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, his name deriving from the fact that John had no lands of his own, he lacked land. This made him unique in his family. His oldest brother, named after their father Henry, was heir to the throne of England, while his older brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, both had large chunks of territory in France. In 1185, however, John was about to shed his awful name in a world where one's bland reflected one's power. His father, King Henry II, had made him Lord of Ireland in 1177, but at the age of ten, young John was then obviously too young to press his rights over the Norman lords on the island, not to mention the Gaelic kings. In 1185, however, having reached the age of eighteen, his hour had finally come. Not only was John going to Ireland to become lord of the island, but the plan was to make him king of both the Normans and the Gaelic Irish. A tall order, to say the least. The Norman colony in Ireland John was bound for, although only 15 years old, was drifting rudderless to some extent by 1185, with individual lords like Hugh de Lacey, the Lord of Meath, creating their own zones of influence without much regard for any collective project. Henry's intention was that with John's arrival, this was going to end. The days of the wild Norman conquests were over. Everything would be carefully planned from here on. John and his aides were going to whip the Norman lords in Ireland into line, as well as the Gaelic kings. Difficult as this might seem, John's family were ambitious, if nothing else. As he made his way west to the port of St. David's, a messenger was travelling south to the papal court at Rome, seeking permission from the Pope to exalt John from Lord to King of Ireland. Craftsmen were also fashioning an emerald ring that would serve as John's ring of office. In planning his youngest son's mission to Ireland, John's father, Henry II, had spared nothing to try and make the teenager undisputed ruler of Ireland. As he headed for the port of St. David's, John was accompanied by what amounted to a full court. Several high-ranking sons of nobles accompanied him, as did an army of over 3,000 men. Even Henry's top official in England, Ranulf de Glanville, had joined the entourage and planned to accompany John as far as the port of St. David's. While immense effort had gone into the mission and John would be finally able to shirk the name Lackland if successful, Ireland was not the place he wanted to be. Only a few months previously, a far more attractive offer had come from what were the most intriguing and unusual visitors to his father's court. Heraclius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, accompanied by Roger de Moulin, the Grand Master of the Knights Hospitaller, and Arnold de Taroja, Grand Master of the Knights Templar, had arrived in England, begging Henry II to launch a crusade to save the ailing crusader kingdoms in the Middle East, which seemed destined to fall into Muslim hands. When Henry refused, the three emissaries then asked if Prince John could return with them. For a young man like John, the Crusades represented the height of knightly valour and also a chance to escape the shadow of his father and older brothers. However, Henry, 
always the domineering father, had stepped in and insisted his son instead go to Ireland. Too much planning had already been invested in the mission. It was already over a year in the making. In 1184, Philip of Worcester, a loyal ally of Henry II, had been sent to Ireland to replace Hugh de Lacy as the king's representative. De Lacy, the Lord of Meath, the most powerful Norman lord in Ireland, was a potentially dangerous figure if John wanted to press his rights over Ireland. De Lacy would need to be cut down to size before the prince arrived, and this was Philip of Worcester's task. So it was, no matter how attractive a crusade was for a young man, Prince John would not see the hot deserts of the Middle East, but instead found himself bound for Ireland. Why he preferred the idea of a crusade was understandable. They conjured up exotic imagery of heroes rescuing the holy places in the Middle East, while Ireland was the exact opposite. In John's entourage was a chronicler, Gerald of Wales, who we have met in the series so far. He had only recently returned from Ireland. Given his reports, Prince John could hardly have been excited about Ireland. Writing in 1185, Gerald said of Ireland that it suffers more than any other country from storms of wind and rain. His reports of Gaelic Irish inhabitants were deeply bigoted. He described them as so barbarous that they cannot be said to have any culture, that they were a wild, inhospitable people who live on beasts and are like beasts. These views, which circulated around John's inner circle as they moved slowly through Wales, had a disastrous impact once John landed in Ireland. Sea travel in the Middle Ages, as I've recalled in numerous shows, was immensely difficult. When John's father, Henry II, had crossed to Ireland in 1171, he had been held up in Wales for over two weeks by bad weather. Such was life in the 12th century, so, if decent weather presented itself, the chance simply had to be taken. The army, snaking its way through Wales, eventually reached Pembroke, just 35 miles from the port of St David's in late April. However, for such a large host, which may have already numbered 5,000 people between soldiers and servants, this final leg could easily take up to three days. However, while they were at Pembroke, the weather suddenly cleared and the necessary westerly winds picked up. John quickly boarded ship in the nearest port and crossed safely to Ireland on April 24th. However, this move saw him bypass a famed church at St David's Port. In the deeply superstitious world, this was regarded by some as an ill omen. Fate had intervened to stop John visiting the church. This ill omen was indeed an accurate foretaste of what was about to happen in Ireland. When the vast host disembarked at the port of Waterford, it must have been an incredible sight to behold at the walled town. Waterford's population would have more than doubled in the space of a day. It would have, no doubt, been a boon to the town's merchants, but the presence of mercenaries in John's armies no doubt also created chaos. At Waterford, John faced his first major test as ruler of Ireland. As was customary on such occasions, Gaelic kings from surrounding regions arrived for an audience with Prince John and to pay him homage. The presence of his army made opposition impossible and many kings were keen to have good relations with such a powerful man. John's first test as ruler could not possibly have gone any worse as the prince behaved appallingly. Gerald of Wales, who was in his entourage and presumably present, recalled how John 
treated them, the Gaelic kings, with contempt and derision, showing them scant respect, putting some of them about by their beards, which were large and flowing according to native custom. The Gaelic kings fled the court, and news of this deeply humiliating event spread across Ireland rapidly. According to Gerald, the would-be King John was derided as a mere youth by Gaelic leaders. No matter how much planning had gone into John's mission, nothing could account for such personal behaviour, which was disastrous. While such actions might have been used as a rallying point for Gaelic-Irish kings to oppose what was clearly a further expansion of Norman power in Ireland, John more or less got away with this deeply offensive gesture. He could not have arrived at a better time to subdue Gaelic Ireland. Next we will look at the divided and broken world of the Gaelic kings on the eve of John's arrival. If anyone was going to attempt to stop John pressing his claim to Ireland from within the powerful Gaelic families, the O'Connors of Connacht would have to play a prominent role. However, in 1185, they were at one of the lowest points in their history. Two years earlier, the man who had led them since the arrival of the Normans, Rory O'Connor, had abdicated as King of Connacht and High King of Ireland. Rory was unquestionably a capable man, but he had largely failed to oppose the Norman invasion in a meaningful way. On the battlefield, he had repeatedly showed a conservative streak, something ruthlessly exploited by the Norman leadership, who were exactly the opposite. In 1175, Rory had accepted the Normans and more or less partitioned Ireland between the conquered lands and his own dominions in the Treaty of Windsor. This had failed to stop the Norman advance into Ulster and Munster, but his own border of Connacht along the Shannon River had more or less been respected. In 1181, he had followed this up by marrying his daughter Rose to Hugh de Lacey, the Lord of Meath. When he retired to a monastery in 1183, Rory was succeeded as King of Connacht by his son, the somewhat confusingly named Connor O'Connor. Connor was very different from his father. Far younger, he was militarily aggressive. Even before he came to power, he had commanded Rory's armies and had violently reinforced O'Connor rule in Connacht. Nevertheless, claiming the High Kingship was not easy. The O'Neills in Ulster believed the High Kingship belonged to their family and had always acknowledged Rory in a begrudging fashion, at best, while many other families across Ireland were still reeling from the chaos of the invasion. In 1184, perhaps in an attempt to make a real claim for the title, Connor publicly rejected his father's policy of live and let live with the Normans. No doubt, looking around him, he could see that some of Ireland's most famous kingdoms, Mead, Eastern Ulster and Leinster, no longer existed in any meaningful way, having been disarticulated by the Normans. If he wanted respect, attacking these people would surely help him. In a massive shift from his father's policy of appeasement, Connor took the war to the Normans. He launched a raid into his now brother-in-law Hugh de Lacey's lordship of Meath and in conjunction with the local Gaelic Irish there he burned one of de Lacey's castles. This made many in Connacht nervous. For Rory, his young, aggressive son threatened to undo everything he had worked to achieve. His people and his family in Connacht had survived the invasion through his compromises. Just as Prince John arrived, it now seemed the O'Connors were divided by that classic argument that has raged through history between resistors and collaborators. 
In 1185, Rory would not tolerate his son's actions and decided to re-emerge from retirement. He allied himself to the O'Briens in Munster and some Normans and attacked his own son. This led to an extremely violent summer. The Annals of Loch Key recorded the slaughter of clerics and women who were slain and burned in their churches and in their houses. Nevertheless, it was effective and Rory gained sway over a large portion of Connacht. However, as we've seen in previous episodes, Gaelic-Irish kingdoms were at the best of times volatile and always riven by internal conflict and this war between Rory and his son Connor threw open a Pandora's box. Soon Rory's brother, Cahill of the Red Hand, a name coming from the fact that he had a red birthmark on his left hand, entered the fray. Supported by one of Rory's sons, Cahill, better known by his Irish name, Cahill Crowderg, laid down his claim for kingship of Ireland's most powerful family. When John was arriving, the O'Connors were busy at war with each other. While they cobbled together a piece of sorts in 1185 and Connacht was pacified after much bloodletting, the situation was deeply unstable. There was now three major players, Rory, his son Connor and his brother Cahill, in a ring, each nervously looking at the other, while other members of the O'Connor family, watching on, now realised if ever they had a chance to claim the kingship, this was it. Connacht was about to explode into violence. There was no way that the O'Connors could resist in any meaningful way when John set about the task of becoming king. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There was probably little doubt among John's advisers and his father that the ambitious plans to make the prince king would take years. However, in the first year they could hope to lay decent foundations. It was desperately needed. In 1185, while the Norman invasion was undoubtedly a success, the island was in a mess. There was scarcely anything resembling law and order in the Norman regions. The Norman lords ran their territories with little presence or interference from royal officials in England. They had conquered new territories without any prior permission from their king, as John de Courcy had done in the invasion of Ulster in 1177. If Prince John was to become king, and indeed ruler of Ireland, this would have to stop. While easier said than done, Henry II and his advisers, shrewd men all, 
had come up with a smart plan to establish royal control and law and order in a land that hadn't known it for decades. To establish effective rule, John needed to control the fault lines of Ireland. This was the frontiers between the big power blocks. In 1185, the most obvious one of these was the border between Leinster and Munster. The province of Munster had more or less been in a state of upheaval since 1177. Henry, when he had made John Lord of Ireland in that year when he was still only ten, had also granted the kingdoms of Munster to Norman lords. The south, known as the Kingdom of Desmond, was given to Robert Fitzstephen and Milo de Cogan, while the north, known as Thomond, was given to Philip de Brioge. As we heard in previous shows, Fitzstephen and de Cogan enjoyed some success, but the settlement of Desmond in the north of Munster was an abject failure and disaster. To add further confusion and chaos, the Gaelic families of the region, the McCarthys and the O'Briens, were in a state of almost perpetual warfare. This was the region most likely to cause future instability and upheaval in Ireland, and indeed the chaos would only serve to attract Normans in the neighbouring kingdom of Leinster to drift across the border and start taking land. It was a recipe for disaster, and John needed to control this lawlessness. After arriving in Waterford, and his disastrous encounter with the Gaelic kings, the first campaign, or in all likelihood the first campaign of John's officials who accompanied him, saw them create a buffer zone around Munster, effectively isolating it from the rest of Ireland. This began by building castles at Lismore in West Waterford, Ardfinnan in County Tipperary, and another in nearby South Kilkenny. This enlarged an already existing base around Waterford, from where a large wedge of territory between Waterford on the south coast and Limerick on the west coast could be taken, and this more or less sealed off Munster. This territory, which forms more or less modern County Tipperary, was granted to two loyal aides who could be trusted. This saw Theobald Walter, whose descendants became the Butler family and Earls of Ormond, and William Burke, the patriarch of the Burke family, who became the Earls of Ulster, take much of the land. This corridor between Waterford and Limerick also gave the Normans access to South Connacht as well, but overall it provoked little or no response from the O'Connors. They were too busy attempting to kill each other to kill anyone else. Indeed, Gaelic opposition to this advance was muted at best. There was some conflict over the construction of Ardfinnan Castle, while the son of Dermot McCarthy, the King of Desmond, was killed by William Burke in a fracas in Cork, but these were very much localised sideshows. However, while Prince John faced little resistance from the Gaelic Irish, the Norman Lords of Ireland were another matter entirely. John's greatest resistance came from the Norman Lords themselves. They were no doubt dubious about his arrival since 1184 when Philip of Worcester had arrived in Ireland and replaced Hugh de Lacy as the king's representative. However, no matter what they anticipated he would do, the actions of the young prince were probably far worse. Not only did John display ignorance in his dealings with the Gaelic Irish kings, but he also treated the Normans already in Ireland since the conquest in a very poor manner. Gerald of Wales recorded that John upset the balance of life and relations between the conquerors and the Gaelic Irish in Ireland. He broke peace agreements made with the Gaelic Irish, who were not at war with the colonists, and took their lands away, driving them to violently resist. 
Unsurprisingly, the Normans in Ireland, led by Hugh de Lacy and supported by such figures as John de Courcy and Robert Fitzstephen, did not want new arrivals like John or his hangers-on in Ireland. They wanted the light-touch situation to continue where they could decide their own fates as such. Through the summer of 1185, though, John made his way slowly to Dublin, where he took up residence. However, it was here in the city which should have become his seat of power, that the grand plans his father, King Henry II, had devised, crashed and burned when the young prince came up against the main force of the Normans in Ireland. In Dublin, he encountered the leading Norman, Hugh de Lacy, the Lord of Meath. The contrast between the two men could not have been starker. John, a youthful teenage boy, met de Lacy, a grizzled warrior over twice his age with one side of his face scarred by burn marks. De Lacy embodied Norman power in Ireland. In 1185, the Gaelic-Irish source, the Annals of Loch Key, reflected on his prestige, saying he was King of Ireland. While perhaps this was an exaggeration, it nevertheless it did illustrate Hugh de Lacy's widespread influence and authority not only over the Norman settlers, but also over the Gaelic-Irish as well. He was not about to let this mere boy, Prince John, take it from him. De Lacy was also a very experienced man. He knew, unlike John, when to fight and when to avoid a fight. Taking on the young prince on the battlefield was insanity, probably even suicidal. Even if he managed to defeat the massive army John had brought with him, it would not be long before John's father, Henry, arrived himself seeking vengeance and Henry was one of the best and most ruthless soldiers in Europe. What de Lacy wanted was John out of Ireland and as the summer of 1185 progressed, it was clear that John, who was now proving himself completely out of his depth, would not last long. While he stayed in Dublin, the army he had brought with him melted away before his eyes. This was largely because John didn't pay the mercenary forces and given their loyalty was more to his coin than to John himself, they increasingly sought service elsewhere, and many drifted into the armies of Gaelic-Irish kings. Along with this, and behind the scenes, Hugh de Lacy now provoked a further crisis of the prince's authority. This was done using guile rather than force. John was completely unable to deal with de Lacy, who now used his years of soldiering and indeed working alongside many Gaelic families against John. He ensured that no Gaelic leader of any importance came to Dublin to meet the prince and pay homage. This quickly made John a lame duck ruler. If he couldn't command the allegiance from at least some of the Gaelic Irish to begin with, he could never succeed in dominating the island. Soon it was clear John's mission was going from bad to worse. With his army melting away and the wily Hugh de Lacy completely dominating and undermining him, the idea of him one day becoming King of Ireland in a meaningful manner was a world away. As the year drew to a close, John was desperate to leave and eventually even risked a sea crossing in the middle of winter in December, a time when many avoided sea travel. This saw John leave Ireland and he would not return for over two decades. But with his departure, the Norman Lords of Ireland had scored a massive victory over the royal authorities. Hugh de Lacy emerged as a winner in the affair. King Henry II had sent John to Ireland to rein people like him in and he had basically sent him packing. There was no doubt the visit had an impact but this was more down to the men who had come with Prince John. 
They had seized that corridor of land between Limerick and Waterford, which now exposed much more of Ireland to a strategic interference from the Norman authorities. Indeed, such successes were in spite of the young prince's presence, if anything. John arrived back in England complaining to Henry II about de Lacy, although no doubt Henry also heard of his son's escapades. He had long feared that the Norman lords in Ireland would revolt, but they had shown themselves too clever by half on this occasion. Hugh de Lacy had done nothing illegal, or at least nothing that could be proven to be illegal. There was little Henry could do. This now left Ireland in limbo with an uncertain future, as no one knew what the colonists would do next or how Henry would respond. However, as we shall see in the next episode, those who live by the sword, die by the sword. And before 1186 was out, the situation in Ireland had once more taken an unpredictable turn with a brutal assassination. Finally, I want to take this opportunity to shout out to one of the youngest listeners of the show and perhaps a future historian, Tom Mulek, who listens in regularly. Thanks for tuning in, Tom. I really appreciate it. Until next time, Slán. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.